BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Uh, we have a bunch of stuff going on uh, this week. You know, the, the thing that occurred to me to talk about right off the bat was we've got this basic question right now about Donald Trump. Is he is he done? Is he you know, is 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 Rick DeSantis the the front runner for the uh, GOP nomination, or and you know we know that you know uh, Trump has all his legal troubles. There's obviously a huge push among sort of establishment Republicans, Republicans who like winning elections, Republicans who are done with Donald Trump to make like DeSantis. Like you know, if DeSantis didn't exist, they'd have to invent DeSantis because they want someone to push. Donald Trump out of the way. And, um, you know, The Bulwark, which is one of these new publications that is basically, I'm not sure they're quite a never Trump publication, but one of these kind of, you know, defrocked conservatives, kind of uh, dissident conservatives who are, are, are trying to uh, have a conservatism that is not defined by Donald Trump. They had a, they had a poll out and um, in that poll, it showed, it showed DeSantis beating Trump in a in a nomination battle under kind of any scenario they had him beating him head to head and as we know that's not a real scenario there's not an act there's not a head to head nomination battle other people will be in they had him beating trump in a trump and desantis and someone else and they had him beating trump in a 10 person field with you know all everybody under the sun that's actually different from what most polls are showing now. Most polls that show an actual contested primary still show uh, Trump, you know, 50%, give or take, something like that. And then like, you know, DeSantis at 30 or 40 or, you know, whatever. Trump's usually in, 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 uh, in double digits. Um, and I've been talking to, to, talking to people, talking to Democrats, talking to Republicans, you know, what do we, what do we think about this? And one thing that people, um, oh, the one other thing about that bulwark poll is that it showed that even though DeSantis sort of has the strongest hand, that Trump has an ironclad hold over about 30% of the Republican electorate. And not only that, but they'll vote for him whether he's running as a Republican or not. So if he decides to run as a third party candidate, at least according to this poll, 30% of Republicans will vote for that, you know, vote for Trump as a third party candidate. Now, in American history, uh, those claims don't tend to pan out. However, obviously, we are in a very kind of, um, you know, closely, closely divided uh, country. Even when we talk about solid wins at the presidential level, there are, you know, a few percentage points. So you lose a a even 10% of your coalition, you're done, you're toast, right? Um, So a lot, a lot, a lot of a lot of questions there. What some people point out um, with Trump is that the you know, the Republican establishment was far more opposed to Trump in 2016 than they are now. Far more. And for most of that cycle, Trump was only getting like 30, 35% of the votes. So some people point out, you know, it's not, it's not that different. And he pulled it off then. On the other hand, and I think this is where 
And I'm not really sure where I come down on this. I think this is where, this is the counter to that. To a great extent, Trump took over the Republican Party in 2016 by a kind of shock and awe. It, you know, the, the Republican Party kind of did not know what had hit them before it was too late. They thought it was a joke. He destroyed each of their rising stars kind of in order. They had these ideas, well, we're going to have a contested convention and all this kind of stuff. But that obviously didn't happen. And then it was just, then they were like, well, okay, I guess we're going to lose this election. We'll rebuild afterwards. Then he won. It all happened very quickly. But now we've had three elections where a lot of Republicans feel like, you know what, this is not a strong person to lead our party. This is not, this does not work for us. And he's, you know, overwhelmed by all these different legal challenges, some civil, some criminal. And one thing that is, that I think is kind of hard to, um, hard to quantify is that by some objective measure, Trump is like 20 times crazier now than he was in 2016. If you go back and listen to the things he said in 2016, they sound fairly conventional compared to the stuff that we're just used to now about, you know, the, um, the woke FBI and purging the federal government and uh, all, the, all, the, all the kind of stuff. So um, we're going to get into a little of that because I guess he's, my sense is he is, Trump is both stronger than he looks, but also increasingly desperate because he's losing steam kind of on every front. So we're going to get into that in today's episode, in addition to a number of other topics. Let me remind you, though, before I, we talk about that, that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It's brewed strong with a blend of 100% Arabica coffee. Grady's foolproof bean bags take the mess and guesswork out of brewing with rich, velvety coffee. You can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a cocktail. Just steep it overnight and sip to your heart's content. I, you know, I use these things, and they it, it, it's really true. It's it's very, it's, they've got it all set up where you can't, it's idiot proof. Save yourself a stop and try Grady's any way you want. Ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay. Uh, Kate Riga, what do we, what do we have on our agenda for today? Yeah. I mean, the Trump stuff is it's interesting, right? Because he had these events to formally kick off the campaign last weekend, and they were not your typical Trump events and that they weren't big, raucous rallies, right? They were both, you know, kind of small, almost more traditional campaign kickoffs, like, you know, in, in New Hampshire, like with a ton of local leaders, which is kind of interesting to me because in some ways, I think, a Trump-DeSantis standoff would let Trump do his anti-establishment thing because you can kind of safely assume that Ron DeSantis is going to collect a lot of the, you know, the establishment Republican support. And then Trump can go back, like pretend he was never president and go back to his old thing of I'm the outsider, I'm the only one who fights for you. But instead, he kind of kicked it off with the trappings of you know, a former president running again with like, you know, local leaders and in going to the early primary states or well, I guess they might they may not not be this year, but we're, well, we're the traditionally Republicans, they still might be. Right. I don't know whether it's they don't necessarily move in tandem. Right. So, yeah, it's just it's weird. And then there was a report out this morning that is like, you know, Nikki Haley is going to run, um, which is kind of funny because I've been wondering what like she and Pompeo are going to do. The, the people who like don't actually have jobs, you know, you would think that they <laughs> probably twiddling their thumbs a bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's such a weird landscape, you know, and then we had uh, when when the Pence documents thing came out that he had them too. And Trump was like, leave Mike alone. I mean, that's funny, right? Because that shows how much of a non-threat he finds Pence as well. And clearly is kind of making the gamble that if it's if it's a 2016-esque super crowded field, he sees that as his best chance of winning, which I think is a pretty reasonable calculation to make. So right. like you say, though, I mean, 
quite a point, quite a place of weakness he's in right now as he's trying to get the ball rolling. Well, it's what I find strange is, is, you know, his, his, you know, he keeps, he keeps introducing his campaign, hoping it'll, it'll get some traction. (laughs) I mean, he introduced his campaign, like, you know, what, a week after the November election, that's two, you know, two, three months ago now. Um, in that one, you know, it was it was at Mar-a-Lago. It was like not a not a dinner party, but you know, kind of um, oh, gala yeah, hall room with thing. people yep. sitting, you know, kind of sitting at dinner tables and stuff like that. And that is not his. That's not his thing, right? Richie sitting at dinner tables. I mean, they may love him, but his environment is that kind of raucous Trumper crowd, you know out in some semi-rural area where everybody, you know, where he kind of feeds off the energy. And that's, so I, I didn't know why they did that. I kind of figured at the time it was that they were, you know, they were reacting in a kind of a panic. The election had gone poorly and they needed to sort of announce that he was running to, to try to, you know, forestall, forestall the conventional wisdom. Okay, the election didn't go well. So Trump's done. Who else is going to run for president now? So you had to get in there. But now it's like I said, you know, it's it's two and a half months later. And why would he do that kind of like, oh, I've got all the local dignitaries here kind of thing? It's 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 I, I don't I don't get that. I mean, it you know, um, his as much as he may be arguably tapped out, he still, you know, relatively recently does those, you know, those kind of jamboree things he does. And those work for him. And he, he, he feeds off that. And I don't, so I just don't know why he's not doing that. And it does make me think he's, I don't know, just kind of, he's just kind of isolated down in Mar-a-Lago. Is 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 what I think, and um, he's sort of going, you know, keeps coming up with these new randos who are going to sort of be campaign advisors or stuff like that. And you know, the the thing, the thing in 2016 is, you know, he knows new media, and it was just kind of him getting on TV and riffing and and like dumping on other people and stuff like that. And and we forget. That back in 2016, he wasn't just going on, you know, the Mike Lindell channel or OANN or the, these kind of like freak show channels that are only only where the diehard Trumpers, you know, inhabit. Calling into CNN, um, I don't know if he did an MSNBC, but he was kind of everywhere. And I just, it does feel like he's kind of just lo- lost the thread, maybe. I listened to some clips from those the speeches over the weekend. And it's just, he's gotten so boring. Like, obviously, it's not like anyone ever thought Trump had this great oratorical skill. But like, part of his thing was that he was funny. You know, his his people thought he was charming. Um, you know, they liked that he would kind of make fun of people. And in that kind of call and response way, he did. But I even remember this by the end of his administration. I mean, it was just boring. You know, you had these like multi-hour speeches where he would go on weird tangents and it's hard to follow and people would try to leave the auditorium and stuff. And it just really had that vibe, you know, part of his 2016 appeal was the shock value. Well, the other side of having so thoroughly Trumpified the party is that that shtick is no longer fresh or unique to him. And we discussed this before, and I still do think that Ron DeSantis right now is just the blank canvas for people who are looking for a Trump light, basically. And I think he's pretty untested on the national stage. So I have my doubts that he'll remain the guy for, you know, for the the duration. But it's... I think we're experiencing something that's a little different from the usual flurry of thought that we get. That's like, oh, the Trump problem will resolve itself. You know, he'll he'll fade away. I think this is different. This is that obviously some percentage of his followers will love him forever, but he's not shiny and new anymore. And that's going to be a hard thing for him to navigate because it's not like he's got a lot of policy positions or even kind of entrenched ideological stances to fall back on. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's right. And, and I, you know, uh, on, on the other hand, he is still, um, you know, 50% of Republicans want him to be the nominee. Um, again, that, that, that bulwark poll had, had showed something very different. So I don't know if that's a kind of a, a leading edge or if they were just kind of approaching the, you know, the question differently or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to say. I do think it's, you know, the thing he had in 2016 is, you know, you may not like his sense of humor. It's a nasty sense of humor. It's a, it's a, it's a denigrating sense of humor. It's kind of a cruel sense of humor, but he has a sense of humor and it appeals to a certain kind of person. There's no question about that. Um, and he even has these little kind of weird self-abnegating kind of quirks where he'll kind of make fun of himself, which is sort of gives a certain, you know, kind of uh, draws, draws people in, in a way. Um, and the thing was too, is it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's unpredictable. And, and that what, that's what makes it kind of like, um, you know, rubbernecking in a way. You kind of, you kind of got to look because what's he going to say, right? What's, 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 what's going to happen? And that's, that, that's, that's not, that's not there. And I don't, I don't completely get, I, I, I just don't know how it, I don't know how it plays out. And I, and I do feel like, I think I said Rick DeSantis earlier, Ron DeSantis, um, do feel like, I'm not sure if DeSantis has peaked, but I don't think he is as strong as people seem to think he is. Like he's the guy and he's going to march right through for it. I just don't, I don't buy that. The other thing I'm really interested to see is how like the DeSantis's and the other candidates will treat Trump when they enter the field, because I think we might see a situation where people are like, you know, I love Trump. Trump did great things for this party. And now it's time for a revitalized future standing on the shoulders of that giant. You know, I think it's not really going to behoove them to be like, Trump sucked. Everyone who likes Trump, like, see, ya. you can't win like that, you know, so it might just be this huge, like, adulation fest where they have to figure out ways to kind of, you know, position themselves differently. It almost reminds me of like the Obama, um, John McCain stuff, you know, where like they would do kind of be very respectful of McCain, obviously, because of his, you know, war hero and everything, but then try to make Obama look try to juxtapose the youth and the vitality without being, you know, without being like, oh, you know, he's got one foot in the grave, but be like, well, thanks for the decades of experience and service to the country. But now we're looking ahead, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, 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 um, I, 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 I don't know. Cause clearly there's a certain kind of candidate who, um, you could do that to. Like a Bush type candidate, you could do that to say, hey, I respect you so much, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. I think I've got something new to bring. Trump's not going to go for that. He's going to be happy to say just like, oh, yeah, you pedophile, you know, just, just <laughs> like, just like not just attack back, but go to some bizarre other place. Um, and, and, uh, so yeah, that's not, that, that's just not going to, it's at least not going to work in the way that it would with another older politician. So, so let's, speaking of kind of Republican election woes, let's talk about the RNC elections, which happened at the tail end of last week where Ronna McDaniel was up again. And then there were some like insurgencies, um, including one that was backed by both kind of the you know, super hardcore, super righties. And then also people who didn't want to see Trump, you know, coronated going into 2024. Um, and she ultimately won and then, you know, brings up Mike Lindell, who challenged her to, you know, put a put an arm around everyone and say, hey, we're just, you know, we're one big family here. And aside from almost like the humor of her being elected again after three just disastrous cycles for Republicans electorally, I think some of these same dynamics that we're talking about are just clear in that as well. You know, there's just a great amount of discontent on the right right now because they just lost three cycles in a row. I mean, they won the House, but by historically anemic standards, you know, and now 
it's what we said before, like if even putting some put, putting Trump aside, parties are only content to lose so much before like something's got to give, you know, and that that I think that's the sense in the RNC. That's the sense with, you know, there was some reporting out today about the Arizona race where Carrie Lake and Blake Masters both want to run or at least are both actively discussing it. And now Arizona Republicans are like, well, great, then we're going to like take this huge advantage that Kirsten Cinema gave us and just blow it by putting out these people who have proven quite recently that they can't win statewide. And that right. just seems to be kind of a pervasive dynamic throughout. Yeah, I, you know, it, they, they have not dealt with the Trump thing. That is the fundamental issue here. You have, um, you know, you go back to, it seems like ancient history now, the 2012 election, 2012 election, um, Mitt Romney loses. He didn't lose by some like devastating amount. I mean, he lost. He lost, you know, pretty in the Electoral College. He he lost pretty decisively. Um, but I think Obama got fifty one percent and change of the vote. So he didn't like get like destroyed or something like that. But then there was this whole move for the you know the the GOP autopsy. What went wrong? And there was this you know big united chorus. Um, you know, there's not enough white people. For us to keep doing this, we need to uh, get behind immigration reform. We need to do this, that, and the other. Um, obviously, that completely fell apart because the people who actually run the Republican Party weren't down with that at all, and it went in a totally different direction. But you have um, – there is a tradition, you lose an election, kind of like, okay, what did we do wrong? and What do we need to do differently? Um, and y- you see <laughs> that, that, that that hasn't happened. Um, and you could sort of say uh, in 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 2018, well, you know, it's a midterm. Of course, we you know, it's a midterm. We have a divisive, unpopular president. That's what went wrong. And hopefully, it'll be better in 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 two years. And what are you going to do? You can tell Trump to be different. So no, of course, that's obviously not going to happen. Um, you obviously didn't have a uh, a an autopsy after 2020 because. As far as they're concerned, they didn't lose. So what's to autopsy? The patient is still alive, right? And now after 2022, uh, you've got the people saying, well, uh, you know, no more bad candidates. But the bad candidates thing is, is Trump. It, that is his, is, is his people. And um, even, with, even with DeSantis... Is DeSantis saying like, you know, fuck Blake Masters? I don't want any Blake. No, he's not. He's not saying that. If anything, he's he's sort of leaning into that part of the of the party. So you know, you you still have this thing where it's a very it's a very divided party, and that's kind of the fact, and that's why you have. All these things you have. I mean, it's it's in some ways it's the story of what is playing out now in Washington D.C. Because you know why did why did Republicans have a a you know relatively poor showing for a midterm election with an unpopular? I mean, when I say unpopular, just statistically, he's unpopular. He's like Biden's stuck in the low forties. Okay, why that happened? Well, you know, bad candidates and. The Freedom Caucus, basically, um, because it's not like it's not like the people in D.C. were like we're all like just totally normal Republicans, and then suddenly you've got like Blake Masters and uh, and and Doctor Oz, you know, just showing up out of the blue, right? It's 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 that part of the that part of the party, and um, you have um, you know that's the problem. That's why they didn't do well. Those people. And what is the result of the election? The result of the election is now those people are going to drive a debt default because they want to, uh, you know, cut Social Security or end Obamacare. So the, 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 you know, the upshot of the election is to, is to take what kind of blew up in 2022 and say, okay, let's put let let's let's let those guys run the government now. Of course, it's that's that's not going to go great, 
right? So it's... Yeah. And I mean, I think we they will have the problem of recruiting better people just because people who would do well keep saying they don't want to run for Senate, you know, these kind of Republican governors who are quite popular. And then also, they're just... I mean, like you say, there seems to be almost no self-introspection going here, going on here. Like the RNC just put out a resolution on Monday um, with their stance on abortion going into 2024. And the whole thing just said, uh, we want Republicans at all levels of government to pass the most aggressive anti-abortion legislation possible in the run up to 2024. They blamed the midterm losses on Republicans shying away from extremism on abortion. And this, you know, this is coming from the RNC, the the national party as the one who's kind of adopting what would be the talking points of like the Susan B. Anthony pro-life organization, you know. Um, And this is coming off a midterm where one of the things that has become pretty clear is that Democrats really successfully kind of packaged the Republican extremism as one thing, you know, with abortion, with elections, and managed to make them kind of the, not only the nutty party, but the party that was in control. You know, I think they really successfully used the Supreme Court to make that argument to say, you, you know, you need to vote for us as a buffer against the extremism coming out of this party, even though that party was in, you know, was in the minority, was locked out of government, basically. And now you turn around and your resolution is not, you know, let's moderate a little bit or let's like pretend to support daycare or or something to kind of soften the position. It's just like, let's go even harder on this position that has resulted in, you know, a tranche of stories about, uh, you know, children being raped and being forced to carry uh, to carry their pregnancies to term and like all you know women dying on the table or almost dying because doctors wouldn't do the abortions like in this environment they're just saying you know what let's double down and I think that at some point the combination of everything we're talking about here this inability to learn from Trump an inability to moderate a acquiescence to the farthest right elements of the party I mean that's going to become untenable if they can't find various ways of you know, kind of keeping the minority power, the minority party in power through, you know, the voter suppression or, or what have you. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a sort of a tough nut to crack because from the Republican perspective, you can say, okay, we didn't, you know, we had this tiny majority. It's not how we, it's not how we wanted it to work out. Um, but they can show that I think in percentage terms, right, for the for the House vote, I think they won by sev- a few million votes, like a few percent. I can't remember exactly two percentage points, three percentage points. You know, they got more votes, clearly more votes. Um, and with the Senate. You know, they have uh, their one seat down and they have all these pickup opportunities for 2024. And so they can and, and you know, uh, the, the current polls, at least, don't show, uh, you, know, you know, they don't they don't show Joe Biden running away with it. Right. So if you're a Republican, you can say, yeah, you know, yeah, all those things and that kind of crazy stuff. But I mean, like we're still here. We're like, we might control everything in two years. So what's the problem? Right. I mean, I think it's, you have that basic issue that the, um, the electoral energy of the Republican party is on the right and you, you, you need to cater to, to where that energy is. And with the rest of the electorate kind of just keep everything lo-fi and figure they have to follow along. And that's how you do it. And it kind of worked, you know, like, yeah, they've had three bad elections, but like, you know, they're not, they're not like on the canvas. Yeah. But in a situation, I mean, in a country where like, you know, we're fighting over the last, you know, it's going to be 47 to 47 for sure. And then you're fighting over those last percentages. I'm just saying with the Senate map that they have, the projections that we should have right now should be like likely Republican, right? Easy Republican Senate pickup. And right now everyone's calling it a toss up pretty much just based on the fact that they are struggling to find candidates who can win statewide, who also tap into what you're saying, where all the electoral energy is, which is on the nutty fringes of the party. You know, it's just, it's a weird spot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Speaking of weird spot, let's talk about the latest on the debt ceiling. 
where there's been a bit of movement since we talked last. So some of that is we are now seeing reporting that House Republicans are tossing around the idea of passing a suspension of the debt ceiling, um, basically just trying to kick this can down the road and then tying it to what, the the end of the fiscal year? Is that right? Yeah, end of the fiscal year on September 30th. Right. And so, I mean, the kind of like spin cover for that is, well, let's just line this up and like get all our pressure points together, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me just because those things already come freighted with their own pressure. I'm not sure you need to torque it up <laughs> to make it yeah, compelling. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, just for, for, for listeners, you know, the end of the fiscal year, that's basically the government shutdown trigger. Now, usually in, in previous shutdowns, what's happened, it doesn't actually happen on September 30th because usually they'll do like a, you know, kind of a short term carryover uh, to continue the budget out a couple months and, and usually tends to come in the beginning of the year. Um, but that's kind of what that is. That's when the budget's over. You need a new budget. There's no budget. The government can't, you know, can't, can't keep running. And, and so you align them and then you have, uh, you know, not just debt default, but shut down debt default shark mageddon or whatever. And, and, but yeah, kind of like debt defaults are already pretty high powered. Like, I'm not, I mean, if anything, it's almost like, you know, government shutdowns at this point are, you know, kind of like, you know, it's, it's like you get a big snowfall every few years, right? I mean, it, it, those are, those are, those are not, un, those are not uncommon. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. I think it's just more they, it's this very weird thing because on the one hand, they seem to have this very strong hand. We're going to take the hostage. We're happy to shoot the hostage. And, you know, we're doing this and Joe Biden can say he's not going to negotiate his, you know, till he's blue in the face. But, but, you know, you see how crazy we are, but they don't, they don't know what to do. They, 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 and so they kind of want to put it off. And I think we know from, from, any, from any negotiation, from any standoff in regular life, the, the, the group who's saying, hey, okay, wait, 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 wait. We, let's, let's not have, let's, let, can we put this off? Can we, can we talk more? You know that person's losing. That's just obvious. And, and um, so they can't decide what they, you know, okay, what cuts do you want? They, they can't come up with that because I think, A, they're afraid to say because those cuts are going to be really unpopular. And B, they don't agree, with, they don't agree amongst themselves about what, about what the cut should be. And at least when this was first floated, the idea was, okay, well, we will spend that six, seven months uh, going through the committee process and, you know, putting together a budget. And so we'll all be on the same page about what we're going to do. Well, that's that's kind of more like the democratic plan. You guys write down exactly what you want so we can run against it. So it doesn't um they're all kind of, you know, suited up and ready to go, but they don't seem to know quite what they want to do. Yeah, and then we have this flurry of, you know, House leadership teaching their members the difference between a debt default and a government shutdown. And then this, you know, McCarthy saying, no, we're not going to touch Medicare and Social Security when clearly other members have been talking a lot about cutting uh, Medicare and Social Security. And they're not being great other options for them to kind of proffer as well. This is what we're looking at because all that stuff is unpopular and they won't touch the defense budget, you know? So it's just kind of like not great options for them to coalesce behind, especially when parts of the party seem to be in either don't really know what's going on at all or seem to be in different places. Yeah. Well, you know, if you, if you wall off the defense budget, social security and Medicare, then you're down to a, a, a very small, a comparatively small part of the budget. And if you, I can't remember, I think the initial thing was they wanted to go back two budget cycles and say it has to be that number. So no, which, which is considering the inflation you've had over the last couple of years, that means big cuts. So let's say that's, you know, I don't know, uh, 8% cut or something like that, or 5% cut. If you 
if it's 5% everywhere, it's 5%. But if you wall off those three things, then you're talking about like huge cuts everywhere else because the rest of the budget, and I, 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 I wish I could tell you exactly what that percentage is, but it's something like maybe a third or less. I mean, it's, those are, that's where the money is. Social Security, Medicare, defense, depends whether you consider in defense, various intelligence stuff, whatever. Then you're talking about massive cuts to things and, and, you know, everything the government does. Uh, So they've kind of got themselves in, in a bit of a jam and, but I still don't know. At the end of the day, you need some group of Republicans to say, "Okay, this doesn't make sense. Let's 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 not do this." And you know, good luck with that. Right. Um, you know, I want to loop in our question here because uh, it has to do with the debt ceiling. This is from Chris, who says, "Can you go into more detail around what would happen if the U.S. actually defaulted on the debt?" Uh, and I wrote a piece about this that went up this weekend and talked to some people. And, you know, a key part of it is that it's so unbelievably uncertain because we've never done it before. And things like this, you know, the thing I was so struck by is that you forget how much mood plays into economics, how much how freaked out people are plays into economics, because that's a, a huge part of this, right? You know, if this happens, we, there's an impasse, right? And, and the treasury runs out of extraordinary measures. The amount of panic that, you know, people feel will be a big part. But what's pretty guaranteed is the government would not be able to be making the payments that it makes, you know, on Social Security, on Medicare, you know, veterans benefits, all that kind of stuff would stop. And that in and itself encompasses tens of millions of people. And for many people is what how they live, you know, that those checks are how they buy food and afford rent and just, you know, shape their whole lives. So you've got that right off the bat, you know, and then there are these kind of people have been gaming out ways to get around that, basically. And one of them is called prioritization. And the idea is that the government could pay some bills and not others. We still have no guarantee that this would work. But the theory is that the government would be able to keep paying back the payments associated with the debt. So, you know, paying the the interest on our debt payments in order to kind of calm the bondholders and try to staunch the damage done to the markets as a result of our treasury suddenly being insecure, going from being the most dependable investment you can make to not. And then pushing off those other payments, the Social Security, the Medicare, the veterans, and just waiting until their daily revenue accumulates enough that you can make those payments. So that's and we, the uh, chair of the House Banking Committee basically said, well, that's what we'll do. It'll be fine. We won't default on the debt. Now, the problem is putting aside the, the technological questions about if that's possible. Which is a big, big question. Right. The lawsuits would be immediate because they're, I mean, it's not at all a legal certainty that the government is allowed to make some of these payments and not others. Not to mention the political, you know, the optics of the whole thing, which is basically the government choosing to pay bondholders, many of whom, you know, are foreign entities over giving the veteran his, his, monthly check, you know, I mean, that that doesn't look great from the kind of politician side of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the, the technological thing is a big one. There's something like I think the Treasury sends out something like is it 80 million checks a day or I can't, you know, there's a, there's a lot, right? And, and, and so the idea, the technological issue is the just just the computer setup at the treasury is not equipped to say, okay, this one, not that one. It's just, it's, it's, it's so big. It's just not designed to do that. And on, on Kate's question about the legal uncertainty, there's actually not any uncertainty. Those things are all law. And this, this is what gets into about, you know, kind of like, you know, following the law with the debt ceiling. The executive branch is operating under a budget, which is federal law. Federal law is that that Social Security recipient living in Arizona gets sent a check every month. That's the law. It's not like if you have enough money, 
send it. It's the law. It is statute law. If the if the executive branch does not do that, it's violating the law just as much as it would be violating the law if it continued to borrow money to do that. So when you when you force this, it's not a matter of are you going to break this law or do that. Laws come into co- to collision. The president will have to break some laws and he'll have to basically choose which laws he breaks. Um, and this is where you get to a lot of arguments that there's there's various um, there's various sort of doctrines of uh, you know kind of interpretations of federal law. Sometimes if you have laws that come into conflict, the the executive has to choose which is the which is the least disruptive one to break. Um, and it's pretty clear the least disruptive one to break is to do what we always have done, which is to just borrow money like you're supposed to do and not and not not uh, you know create this whole uh, crisis. So it is important to keep in mind that if you default, if you pay the bondholders, so technically don't default, but are default you know are not paying all the other things, all of those things break the law, and the president's one of the well one of the president's primary responsibilities i think arguably his primary constitutional responsibility is to see the laws are enforced so it's an impossible position on the question of of what happens i mean my take on this is that there's really there's there's kind of three there's three dimensions to see this in one is that if you are not making those medic medicare payments if you're not making the social security payments if you're not making the military pay if you're you know what whatever you choose not to spend you are taking a huge amount of money out of the economy it's comparable to what you had during the beginning of the pandemic where just a massive amount of demand is is pulled out of the economy that's a massive economic shock that doesn't have anything to do with um, with the you know psychology of the market of how much how big a deal people think it is. If you have X percentage of the population uh, that lives on the basis of Social Security checks, um, employment that is paid through Medicare, nurses, doctors, blah 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 blah. If suddenly they don't have any income. That is a that is a massive shock to the economy. That gets you into big recession terms. Normally, when you get that big an economic shock, you do some sort of stimulus package. But obviously, you can't do a stimulus package because you're not even able to run the government on on a baseline. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is the psychology part of it, which is what you know, one of the things that Kate was uh, getting at. And I think it is it's possible, at least in the short term, that. And, and well, another part of the if you're not if you're not making the debt payments, those payments, like you know your pension fund or whatever, that has to pay stuff out, they need those payments, so they will not be able to pay stuff. So that you know that money is not theoretical money; it actually ends up somewhere. It's possible, I think, that the sanctity of U.S. Treasuries. Are so basic to the to the global financial system that it's possible that the markets will just say, you know what, we're going to pretend this is not happening. It will get paid because there's 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 no one can imagine a scenario where they're not paid. So I do think it's possible that that the market stuff may not react quite as dramatically as quickly as people might think. But I mean, who knows? You know, are you feeling lucky? Basically, mm-hmm. we don't know just because Kate says we don't. We haven't done this before. We haven't done something so stupid before. The biggest thing in my mind is, is it's good to have the global financial system oriented around your currency and your um, your state. Uh, you know, your 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 state bank, the Federal Reserve. That gives us. It is sort of the underpinning of our global primacy, A. It's why we can always borrow money 
because it's a sure thing. You know, it's like the UK now, after they sort of like blew themselves up with their idiotic Brexit thing, they can't do that because they're they're not they're not the US. And when they start saying like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut this and do that, suddenly the market's like, eh, I'm not sure we're gonna buy your debt anymore. And like suddenly you have to kind of, you know, follow the markets. There's all sorts of stuff. We don't have to do that because we have this, we have this massive advantage that we have built up over time and it has ebbed somewhat. There's, you know, other other currencies are being used as as reserve currencies and, you know, some commodities are now traded in other currencies. But basically the world is still kind of wired around the US Treasury. And that is such a an advantage, such a privilege for the United States. And what this does is you're just like you're just kind of like light that on fire. Because even if this is resolved after a week, people start thinking like, okay, it, it's just weird over there. You know, they, 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 their political system is, 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 is weird enough that you've got to factor that in. And again, it's kind of one of these things where in the short term, it's not like uh, the world economy can say, all right, we're going we're gonna to just use the yuan. Or we're going to use the ruble, right? I mean, there's there's not another option. But why would you take something that is so advantageous in in such a basic sense and just destroy it? It's the 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 level of 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 self own is is you know almost unimaginable. And the thing is, even from 2011, where we didn't default, but that was kind of the first big Republican game of chicken, you know, our credit score was downgraded. And people have done studies that show borrowing costs were increased for like two years after that happened. And we didn't even default. So the thing is, I think there is a difference. Everyone I talked to kind of said, either way, if there's an impasse, it's bad, right? But the longer it is, the worse it is. Because it's like you say, Maybe, maybe, and this is a huge maybe, but maybe the markets would be like, okay, Congress is going to see how bad this would be. And that'll kind of light a fire under the Republicans ass and have them uh, remedy this. Whereas if it stretches for weeks and weeks and weeks, I mean, you, you just can't do the stuffing your fingers in your ears thing, right? So there, I think there is a difference. And there's also the difference of the, the very physical piece you, you were talking about, about if this percentage of the population doesn't get its checks, it simply does not have money to spend. That is obviously much more of an issue if the impasse is prolonged versus one missed payment, right? Right. And so those things Couple definitely- days, something like right. that. Yeah. And those play in and that could be, but we could all, even just with those two things, we could be talking about the difference between a mild recession and a very deep- catastrophic recession, you know? So I do think in some way the the gamesmanship around, well, how could, you know, the Treasury will bail out Congress, right? Like they're they're the sane branch, they'll figure something out. I just think, first of all, we, we don't know that they can, even if they want to. And it does damage anyway to just give the kind of global market this image, like you say, that, that America is so dysfunctional that this may go sideways this time. And if not, it may go sideways in the future. I mean, just losing being the benchmark of financial trustworthiness, like you say, is a such a massive self-inflicted injury that we're facing, again, for what, right? Because Republicans kind of like the idea that they have this big weapon and they can claim to be the party of fiscal responsibility while they're using it, but they can't even get their acts together enough to tell us what they want to get for it, what the concession would be. And we're facing this, you know, potential Armageddon for what? It's just, it's, uh, it's like infuriating. Well, that's what, you know, I, I have argued that I, I think that the, the debt ceiling mechanism is actually unconstitutional for two or three different reasons. But the problem with that argument, which I think is a constitutionally valid argument, is that once you start saying, well, the Joe Biden and the Treasury say this is a, the, you know, has the full faith and credit of the United States, but the Congress doesn't, even if you're still doing it, you, that introduces a huge amount of uncertainty. Is the Supreme Court going to come in and, and agree with Congress? And say that 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 those those securities weren't allowed to be sent. So even if you 
even if you do what I think is the right thing and say this whole thing violates the Constitution, you, Congress, approved this borrowing when you mandated the spending, and that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. Even that introduces a level of uncertainty and risk that is almost as bad as a brief period of default because you just, you, you know, it's not 100% certain. Right. So let's just wrap up with a, a different topic, but something else that we're watching, which is since Dobbs, you know, it became clear that what's known as the abortion pills were going to be the new kind of frontier here, because that's the biggest thing that's changed pre and post Dobbs is the availability of these pills, the accessibility, the idea that now, thanks to the Biden administration, finally lifting these very repressive restrictions on one of the drugs involved, mifepristone, which for years, the major medical organizations have been asking the government to lift, arguing that this is a political decision and not one based in science. But the Biden administration made it so that you can get these medications at certified pharmacies, you can get them prescribed over telehealth, and you can get them in the mail, all of which kind of catches the legal market up to where the gray market has been for a long time, which is that it's not that hard to find them online, to get them ordered to you. Some places will only order to kind of abortion-friendly states, but you can just kind of set up a mail forwarding into your red state. Okay, so that's the landscape, right? These pills are easy to get hard to shut down, even from these like super activist state legislatures. So now we've started the lawsuits over this. Um, there's one big one in Texas where they're challenging the authorization by the FDA of Mifepristone, which happened in 2000. OK, so it's been like 20 plus years since that happened. And the FDA is basically saying, among other things, guess what? Statute of limitations has run out. You know, you had to bring this challenge about two decades ago. But the, you know, Texas judge shopped, found an anti-abortion district court where they could send it, which is governed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which obviously is <laughs> would be shocking if they came down on the side of the FDA. You know, and then you go to the Supreme Court. So not a whole lot of comfort to be taken there, even though I read through the arguments and most of it is just based on anti-abortion lies, including that childbirth is less dangerous then these abortion medications, which is just like completely, absolutely no hedging about it, false, right? Well, and even and even if it even if it were true, there are all sorts of medications that are approved and taken constantly by people that have risks associated with them. Right. So even if it not even 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 in the context of the sort of the FDA framework, I don't think that would even make a difference. And yeah. but but to your point, it is not true. Right. And the whole thing is so ridiculous because it has been angering to supporters of abortion access for years, the FDA's attitude towards abortion medication, which has been to put it under the same restriction that fentanyl is under, even though it's safer than taking Tylenol. So, I mean, it's a whole mess, but you've got that going on. And then we just kind of had the counter effort come last week, which was from a generic maker of Mifepristone saying West Virginia's abortion ban is illegal because the FDA has approved our drug, right? Like our drug can be sold in West Virginia and everywhere. And that is a violation of the supremacy clause for a state to say, no, we don't like that drug. So you actually can't sell that here. And just and just for clarity, when you when you make this point mm -hmm. about about Texas suing, mm -hmm. if they were to prevail, that wouldn't just affect Texas. It would mean it was also illegal in Massachusetts, in New York. I mean, I guess exactly. for a period, possibly just in one circuit. But the point is, they are, because because they don't want it in Texas, they want to outlaw it everywhere right. through the and FDA procedure. If they were successful, the FDA could kind of go back and approve it through the more slow, arduous method, which they didn't use the first time. They kind of used this. But they used what could, what is usually used as an expedited way to get the drug approved. But actually, the way the FDA did it was so they could add more restrictions to it, which is basically what the anti-abortion movement wants. But just to say that the FDA basically could go back to square one with Mifepristone to get it approved again. But that would take a long time. And there's also the backup plan that the other drug that is usually prescribed in concert with Mifepristone is misoprostol. And that one 
the abortion use is kind of the off-label use. It's mostly used for uh, to treat ulcers. So the anti-abortion movement has never had a problem with it. And you could kind of just see a spike in medicinal abortions just using that piece of the cocktail, which is still very effective, if not as effective as the two together. But, you know, then we're opening up a world where there'll probably be drug shortages, right? Like there won't be enough of those pills. So anyway, it would be it would be bad. But it's really interesting to see how this is the new landscape, right, of the abortion war. And at a time when the anti-abortion movement has kind of notched, uh, you know, its biggest historical success, they are also further from eradicating abortion in the United States than they ever have been before. Because even if they win this Texas lawsuit, right, and get legal mifepristone off the books, that's not going to stop people from getting the pills, you know, because now you have all these online resources, you've got kind of clinics set up just to, to, uh, you prescribe the pills, you have pills even coming out from uh, other countries, you know, the international trade is pretty. Um, well, wouldn't wouldn't but for the for the clinics in, in the United States, wouldn't um, the FDA rescinding its approval that would affect those clinics that, 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 that I mean, it's not just a matter of like ordering it online, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's if it were if it were outlawed, the cl- the clinic couldn't couldn't give it to you right. either. The legal right? market would completely go away. It would all right. be transitioned into this kind of gray slash. In that case, it would be a, you know illegal market. But I'm I'm just trying to make the point here that it is ubiquitous. Like right. access to these pills. I mean, whether legal or not. Of course, then you introduce all kinds of scary possibilities, right? That scammers and medicines that don't do what they say they will. And especially right. with an unwanted pregnancy, time is of the essence. So that introduces well, all kinds of problems. If you're, if you're not, if you are ordering from abroad outside of the FDA approval structure, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You know, right. as you say, it's, there's, there's that. What, it, what do, um, what do the people who know what they're talking about make of the chances of this Texas lawsuit being successful at more than just the, you know, the, 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 the trial court level, you know, once it gets up into the appellate system and everything? I mean, it's just, right, everyone's position is kind of, Texas's argument is so flimsy. And this is just a fundamental matter of the supremacy clause, right? I mean, federal law trumps state law that is just, that is the way we operate, you know? And so I think the hope is that that could give an in for even some of the anti-abortion, I mean, not like Alito or Thomas, but some of the less rabid anti-abortion justices to to maybe be concerned about this, especially because they premised their overturning of abortion on the, you know, the quote like unquote, we're giving power back to the yeah. states, right? Um so I don't know. I mean, people are people are concerned, you know, when you have a, a such a far right court system, you can't really make any or put any of your comfort in in the right. strength of the legal arguments, you know. Well, I guess part of I, I, I'm just clearly I mean, as we have learned with the current federal judiciary and especially with the Supreme Court doctrines, rules, like whatever, you know, mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. like there's a huge amount of of of. Um, uh, you know, result-oriented thinking, but the FDA has. There's a whole framework around FDA approvals, and as you said, this is 20 years ago. So the I would have to imagine that the the, the burden of the state of Texas is incredibly high here. Right. Um. To I mean, you know, are they going to come in and say that you're you know, the FDA is wrong about your blood pressure medication. I mean, you know, it's, it's, right. it's, it's really out, especially I, I assume, um, as you say, I mean, 20 years ago, that's like ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's a little hard for me to believe that. And, and from, from the lawsuit itself, what, what arguments it, it is Texas's main argument, hey, this isn't a safe drug, so you were wrong to approve it because you know that is a that is a such a factually weak argument, especially when it's been out for twenty years, right. and we so we know what it does. I mean, it's but a hodgepodge. I would say probably centrally, the argument is that expedited 
way that the FDA approved the drug back then, because they are mm-hmm. saying that way is supposed to be for um, treating Urgencies illnesses or, and yeah. pregnancy is not an illness and everything like that. But then there's also, and by the way, it's not safe. And then you have all these kind of Christian doctors group saying, and this harms us because if there are adverse side effects, that's going to clog our emergency rooms and we won't have the ability to treat other patients, which what you were just saying about the heart medication, basically that's what the FDA says in response. Like if you approve this kind of a lawsuit based on such speculative harms, any drug could be challenged the same way. You could just have some doctors who don't like it saying, well, if things go wrong, that could be a burden on me, which is not, I mean, that's not how lawsuits work. You don't get just get to imagine the damages, right? Well, I would, I would, I would think too, that in this case, and I know that, that these, these drugs are, it's not like they were used, they were immediately used at current levels 20 years ago. They've right. obviously built up, mm-hmm. but they have been used for 20 years. So it's in a case where you are approving a new drug, there's always a chance like, you know, it never has been used on a mass basis. So do you know that's not going to happen? Right. You know, you can you always have that to work with. But in this case, you've had it used for 20 years. So it's it's the you basically have the proof. Like we don't have to imagine it's the status yeah. quo and it's not happening. So what are you talking about? Um, yeah. at, at, you know, as we've, as we've discussed many times in many contexts, uh, the current Supreme Court and certainly the more conservative districts, you know, you just do what you want. You don't, you know, right. you're not really controlled by, by the jurisprudential doctrines of how things are decided or what the evidence is and stuff like that. But I would think that, um, I would certainly think that in this case, the mix of the FDA's authority plus the just the evidence, mm-hmm. you know, it's happening right now. So what's, you know. What? Yeah. And I mean, we have seen that with this, even with this court before, right? We've seen cases come to them that are just so bad. They're like, well, we can't use this one, you know, and then you'll have Alito write a concurrence where he's like, but try again, you know, we're, right, we're open right. to this, you know, I wonder if there's a way in which they could, I mean, if I'm anti-abortion, I would maybe say, okay, look, the Supreme Court has said that states are in charge of, you know, what happens in their jurisdiction. And uh, this, the, the existence of this drug um, makes that not possible. So, you know, through Dobbs, uh, this, the approval of this drug uh, violates Dobbs because it undercuts the, the power that you have said states have to regulate how this works. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty, that's a pretty weak argument because, you know, federal government decides um what drugs are um what drugs are allowed and um you know but i i could see i could see an alito type saying hmm not a bad point not right. a bad point right so i almost i almost um i mean it, it's obviously very uh, uh complicated and I would imagine that they will make arguments like that because the current argument, to the extent that it's 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 framed on like, oh my God, there's all these there's there's going to be all these you know uh, uh, you know childbearing age women just flooding the emergency rooms because they're taking these. I mean, come on. I mean, it's like it's it's out there now. Clearly, that's not happening. Yeah, exactly. It's out there. It's been out there for twenty years. It's been out there under the strictest. Uh, parameters that the FDA gives any drug, you know, which required a patient form. You had to pick it up at a clinic. You had to be prescribed it in person. You had to take it in person, you know, and some of that is lifted now. But (laughs) I mean, the FDA is really not been on the side of abortion access throughout its handling of this drug, you know, so and, and now it's kind of pitched in battle again, trying to say, (laughs) <laughs> we approved it 20 years ago and we did it in a way that the anti-abortion movement has long been pretty okay with, you know? Right, so, right. Uh, but now in the in the quest to eradicate any abortion access 
countrywide, it's just clear that this is the next step. This is the next way to try to tell blue states, well, you you can't use this either. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, I guess we've covered a lot of territory. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is about it for today's episode. Let me remind everybody. um, It always feels a little funny when we go from a very serious topic to like, okay, catch you later. (laughs) Later, later, everybody. (laughs) Uh, But uh, let me remind you, the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off by using the promo code TPM at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And uh, transition or not, that is it. All right. Later, everybody. Bye. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.